0: Hello and welcome to A League of Our Own. I'm Gabriela Almonte, your host, and today we're going to be talking about Latinos in baseball and their impact in the U.S. To start off, you're probably wondering why that's the name of the podcast. And it's because I was inspired by one of my favorite baseball movies with Tom Hanks, which is called A League of Their Own. I really recommend watching it so let's get right into it um the topic is latinos and baseball and their impact in the u.s as i said earlier so let's take it back to the 19th century and familiarize ourselves with some history and when it was made if i'm being honest doing this whole thing is pretty exciting because i actually recently started getting more into baseball to the point where i wanted to start playing softball I started going to every game in the Yankee Stadium in the summer of 2019 with my friend, and you'll just have the time of your life. Now, doing my research, I'm glad I will now be educated on the history of it all, especially from my people. You know, I have Latin roots. I am Dominican, so yeah. The first Latin American player was Steve Villan. He came from Havana, Cuba, and he even attended a school, which would later become Fordham University. But he mostly represents the idea of playing the game in the U.S. like kind of like a coach and he was known as like the manager or as someone who introduced baseball to Cuba. Dolph Luke was the first player to really get the attention and become a star in the U.S. major leagues. It's crazy to see though because in one of the newspapers according to the book Speak English, it said that he looked more Italian than Cuban. Now, if you really think about it, in a way, it makes you think like, well, does it really count then? And this was my first response, because back then, it all came down to your complexion, right? So, to read this, is kind of like a slap in the face, at least for me. He basically got lucky, in a way, because of his skin color. A perfect example is Martin Vihigo. He was also a Cuban professional baseball player around the same time, except he played in the Negro League Baseball and Latin American Leagues, which means he didn't make it into the Major Leagues. But it is known that it was his race that didn't let him compete in the Major Leagues. My point is that here we have two Cuban professional players around the same time. And one of them got to make it into the Major Leagues and one of them didn't, and it's clear that the difference was skin color because Dolph Luke looked Italian, white, and Martin Higo was also Cuban but dark skin. Um and this had no nothing to do with the skill of the player, right? So you're probably wondering, like, oh Gabby, maybe You know, maybe Dolph Luke was actually a better player than Martin DeHigo, so we can't really compare. But it's proven that Martin Dehigo was actually one of the greater baseball players that actually is just very underrated and didn't get what he deserved because of these barriers. So this kept on happening until the mid-1900s. This is when we start seeing the Latino players are now being allowed to the major leagues but not welcomed. A little side note, though, I would just like to be a little biased for a second because I am Dominican, as I said earlier. But in case you want to know, because I know I didn't, the first Dominican baseball player to play in the big leagues was Ozzie Virgil. And I probably should have known that. <laughs> he played for the team, the New York Giants. But yeah, that was just very exciting for me to find out. Now, going back to Latino players being allowed into the major leagues, but not being welcomed. Since I already started talking about Dominican players, a perfect example to depict the not feeling welcomed feeling was Felipe Aló. Felipe Aló was dark-skinned, and on top of that, did not speak English. And Americans seem to have this rule that if you don't speak English, you don't belong in the U.S., which is ridiculous. And this went on throughout, not only baseball players, everyone has been from the Latinx community was dealing with this. So I recently also just did a module on this in my Latinos in the U.S. class where we get to kind of explore the different aspects of being a Latino. I will continue talking about my latinos in the u.s class later on but I would just like to focus on Felipe Lowe because Felipe Lowe was the perfect example of the not feeling welcomed feeling he was like an outcast I mean it was in a way like he was there but not really there people including his teammates treated him horrible it's crazy to think that this happened not too long, long ago and not much has changed I mean in baseball of course many milestones have been made but racism is still intact and a whole lot of ignorance is present And one of the best examples for modern day racism is actually the Black Lives Matter movement. This was a very big movement and if you think about it, it all came down to the color of your skin and it is 2020. I feel like ignorance should not be present when it comes to color and you know we're all here for the same reason. We need to get things done and I feel like just we should just accept it and move on and let others just do what we have to do without having that feeling of like oh like I don't belong here or oh I don't speak English so I'm not supposed to be here I don't feel welcomed or even like oh like I'm I'm getting treated badly because of my skin color which shouldn't even be the case so. Moving on, I would just like to talk about one of the known players that has really impacted the US, especially in his good deeds. Roberto Clemente was a Puerto Rican professional baseball player. He was signed to the Brooklyn Dodgers, but they didn't allow him to play because he did not fit the roster. But instead, they moved him to an affiliated major league team known as the Montreal Royals. But this was because of greed. Initially, the Dodgers just didn't want any other team to claim him for the next season. So, a lot of people know that Roberto Clemente was a great baseball player. And this is showing exactly the mentality of people back then. So, it's like basically saying... Let me just paint you a picture, right? So, here's Roberto Clemente. He's a great baseball player. Now you know other teams are looking at him and they're like wow like he's actually a really good player you know he might benefit my team so the Brooklyn Dodgers decided oh well I'm gonna just keep him to myself you know I'm not saying that I'm gonna do something with him but I'm going to keep him to myself because I don't want anyone else to have him I don't want anyone else to progress because he was such a good player instead they moved him to the affiliated major league team known as the Montreal Royals, which is just amazing because this is just greed at its finest. So, but Roberto Clemente was not only known for being a great baseball player, but he's, he was also known for standing up for fellow Latino baseball players when it came to racism. And that's why people loved him so much. He didn't care. He stood up. He knew how to carry himself. Now I would like to familiarize my listeners with the book called Beyond El Barrio. Beyond El Barrio focuses on how Latinos are portrayed in the media. I would like to focus on how Latinos were viewed in baseball, but with a little help from someone who initially disagrees with the point that the authors of the book are making. He has joined me today to talk about his response to Beyond El Barrio and his insights behind it all. Now it's time to welcome Ivan Waldo to A League of Our Own. Hi Ivan, thanks for joining us.
1: Well thank you, Gabby, for inviting me onto your program and for your interest in my piece. I consider it an honor to have received your invite.
0: Of course, thank you. It's an honor to even be interviewing you. This is the first time and I'm glad you know it's with someone that I share a common interest with. So you are new to the podcast and you were recommended to me by Professor Galvez because you were once her student, correct?
1: Yes, I was a student of Dr. Galvez. I took several courses that she taught during my time at Lehman College. Each course was more enthralling than the next. I spent a lot of time in her classrooms, and I learned a lot as well.
0: That's great. I'm, I can say the same exact thing. So did you think that after a couple of years, you would still be getting emails about your response to um, Beyond El Bahrio?
1: You know something? I actually didn't even know that there were people still reading it. I only found out that Dr. Galvez was using it in her classrooms just recently. I thought that it had found its way to some forgotten corner of the Internet, never to be heard from again. (laughs) When I heard that people were still reading it, it really did surprise me, especially since it was never intended to be an article for publication. It was really just a homework assignment that I had turned in. By the due date, that somehow grew legs and off it went running with a little push from Dr. Gavette. That's great. To to answer your question, no, I did not expect to be receiving emails from readers about what I had intended to be just a random homework assignment. I find the fact to be extremely interesting that to this day it garners interest from readers.
0: Yeah, it, sh- it, it did interest me a lot. I was reading it and I actually look up to you for that because for you to be able to do a homework assignment and like find out that it was published in the NYU Press and, you know, a professor using your article as an example in her class, that that's a really big deal. So you should be proud. So just to paint a picture for our audience, tell us about yourself and about your response to Beyond El Barrio.
1: Sure. Um, I am Puerto Rican, Black, and Native American. So I fall into the category of Afro-Puerto Rican, and I clearly look like someone that came from a mixed household. And from the outside looking in, that's how most people interpreted my household. Even though my lineage comes from different cultural backgrounds for me and my siblings, We never experienced culture clashes or viewed ourselves as having to distinguish between them. In fact, the different cultures coexisted seamlessly. My father was Black and Native American, but was also the smoothest salsa dancer on the dance floor and could (laughs) cook a pot of rice and beans better than your abuela. My mother, who is always being confused for an Italian or Greek woman, taught me more about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and made me aware of what it is to be a person of color in this society more than anyone else has in my entire life. Interesting. And and it was that cohesion of complementary cultures that I internalized and used in the ways that I analyzed and navigated the world around me. That cohesiveness made team sports an easy element for me to transition into. That and the fact that my mother had three boys running around the house and would kick us out of the house at every chance she got. So I was always outside. I was always playing sports with other kids. And I had good hand-eye coordination and could throw a baseball well. So I naturally found myself on several little league teams where I played until an accident prevented me from being able to play the way that I used to be able to. And from that point on, I coached youth Little League teams. And that's where I gained the experience that I drew from to write the response that would eventually get published.
0: Okay, so that's great. So that so do you think that your experience with baseball um, really made this assignment easier for you? Because you had told me that um, you did this actually the, the day before it was due, so... Was it something that you were like looking forward Don't to? Don't tell Alicia that <laughs> Was that something that you initially were like looking forward to completing, or was it in that moment that you were like, Oh my gosh, like I love this, like I love this assignment. It has to do with baseball, something I love.
1: Well, truth be told, I actually I actually redlined this, I, I redlined that assignment on the first day that Dr. Galvez handed out the syllabus, the, the syllabi to everyone. As soon as I saw Little League and baseball and the Bronx and Latinos, I was like, oh, this is right in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for this assignment to come up. Right. Um, yeah. I was, I was eagerly anticipating the opportunity to be able to complete this assignment. And to answer your question, it's the, the, my, my experience with baseball and then Little League and being a Yankees fan and being from the Bronx, born and raised, it gave me the experience that made this assignment a difficult one to complete because I had understandings and nuances that escaped the authors. And as I was going through the assignment... I, I I had a, a dilemma that I was facing, which was, do do I write what I know and and call out the authors on what seems to be uh, misinformation, or do I try my best to get a good grade so I can get an A? I don't know. Um, it actually made it more difficult for me to complete the assignment.
0: Yeah. That's good though um that the end result was came into your favor. <laughs> so beforehand I got to email you when you told me that you had no intention of being overly critical of beyond the barrio which came to my surprise because your response was so well written and put together anyone who reads it probably could have never imagined that 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 wasn't in your your intention in the first place. So what changed? What really made you say like I don't agree with this. I need to go like, say something, I am against this, like, what really made you say, like, yeah, no, I have to speak up?
1: Right. Um, my response came as a surprise to me, too, right? Um, because I, I really did eagerly await that week on the uh, on the syllabus, so this way I'd be able to engage in something that I knew that I was extremely familiar with. And, and when that that week came up and the day came for me to engage the materials and start reading the book, um, I I started flipping page after page. And there was something off about the information that I was reading. A few things just weren't adding up. There were red flags surfacing. And the reading just wasn't sitting right with me. Like, for instance, on page 83, uh, the author writes, suspicions of Danny Almonte and the Rolando Paulino All-Stars were always about more than on-field success of young boys. It reiterated suburban fears about urban barrier residents as it projected the racialized suspicions and tensions about national belonging among adults onto the boys. And I remember reading that passage and saying to myself that This is one heck of a stretch for this author to make, to attach and project racism as the motivational factor behind the suspicions of Danny Almonte and his teammates. I continued reading the chapter searching and waiting for the sporting evidence for the author's perspective, and it was never presented. In fact, the facts of the case, one which I was watching closely alongside with uh, thousands of viewers and countless fans, contradicted the author's assertions. There were valid reasons for the suspicions surrounding Rolando Paulino's team, and specifically Danny Almonte, that lay outside of the parameters of race. Suspicions that were later confirmed, thus validating them. I believe that the authors, that had the authors been intimately involved in the management of a Little League team, that they would have understood this. But sometimes, And this happens in academia as well. People speak with the eloquence and articulate words and phrases compellingly, but they don't actually say anything relevant or even coherent. And as I read through the chapter, it became quite apparent to me that this was a case of someone speaking about a topic and about subjects that they were not familiar with. My original piece that I had submitted to Dr. Galvez contained several cultural references to signal to the reader that I was familiar with the subjects being discussed, including details in my remarks that those who are, who are or were involved in these subjects would understand. However, for the purposes of publication, sections of my piece were edited out to fit within the space that they had available, leaving what was eventually published and read by readers. However, despite the edits, what still comes across in my piece is an understanding of the subjects that the authors simply do not have. For example, the authors use vocabulary and references out of context. On page 83, they write, a gentleman's agreement excluded blacks from the major leagues from the late 1980s until 1947. As for Latinos, they could only participate in organized baseball if they passed a racial litmus test administered by organized baseball executives to distinguish them from those perceived to have as having African ancestry. Upon close examination, one finds that organized baseball long operated as a social institution that abided by its own uh, own racialized understandings that affected opportunity. Now, the term organized is not exclusive to Major League Baseball, which is only one of several baseball leagues that have operated and are still in operation today. The term organized simply denotes that there's a league structure to the teams and the system that a person plays for simultaneously. simultaneously, Being a professional does not exclusively mean that a person plays for a team within that Major League Baseball infrastructure. And this is true of all sports. There are players that go overseas to play professionally in Italy, in Greece, in Argentina, in Australia. Local legend Stefan Marbury has a statue erected in his honor outside of the Beijing Ducks Arena and has a museum dedicated to him and his career within the same city or from playing as a professional in the organized league system in China. Another reference point to draw from is one of the many failed business ventures of the current president, who is once an owner of the now defunct New Jersey Generals, a professional football team within the United States Football League, a football league in operation and in direct competition with the National Football League. The 2019 champion Long Island Ducks and the now defunct Newark Bears played in the Atlantic League of Professional Baseball. Another example of professionals involved in organized baseball. And while Babe Ruth was hitting home runs for the Bronx Bombers, there was an even greater professional baseball player during the same time as Ruth hitting more home runs than Ruth ever did. Josh Gibson, who played in the Negro Leagues, another professional baseball league in operation at the same time, right? The misusage of sports vernacular or the misunderstanding of its meanings is a subtle detail. One that signaled to me that the authors are not intimately familiar with the subject matter or completely understand the nuances of the subject matter that they're writing about. And their chapter is littered with such subtle details. It is why I chose to pepper my piece with details and cultural references to signal to the reader the ways that I was familiar with the subject matter, and also why I felt it imperative to outline all of the ways that the authors failed to make their point.
0: Yes, I agree. I agree. I When I was reading your response, actually, to Beyond El Barrio, I went to the book myself in the Lehman Library and I was reading it and I was like, this does not even make sense. It kind of sounded like he was just... Speaking to speak in a way, you know, no evidence backed up, like it was kind of like a mess. I was just reading something and I was like, "What? What is this?" You know. um, (laughs) And like, I just started getting into baseball now, like this last year, and I may not know a lot about it, but like reading that, I was just actually not. I was just like, "Yeah, no, I'm not feeling this," like you know. (laughs) But thank you so much for that explanation. So. Something that came to my attention was that, on page 87, it was not until the 1900s that the Bronx Bombers faithfully embraced the Puerto Rican or Latino star. And you even brought this to our attention just now by saying that that's an untru- untrue. Do you think that the authors say this because some of the players that you named weren't part of winning seasons when they played? Which seems to be um what people think, because just because they didn't play in winning se- seasons means that Oh, they weren't a star, you know.
1: Truth, the truth is that is a very real possibility. When you're a losing team, people don't really play pay close attention to the players or the team in general. Many times they just look for someone to blame, a scapegoat to take out their frustrations on. But this statement is another example of a subtle detail that signals to me that the authors are not true Yankee fans because true Yankee fans were coming out to the stadium during those bottom of the barrel years. Like I was years that lasted for over a decade and many, many talented players came out to the ballpark each day and put in their best efforts, hall of fame efforts, like Dave Winfield, who's in the hall, Ricky Henderson, who's in the hall, Goose Gossage, who's in the hall. And some players that, if you ask any Yankee fan, are deserving of a place in the hall, like Don Mattingly, like Ron Guidry. The fact that the author is unfamiliar with these beloved players that the true Yankee fans appreciated throughout the lean years tells me that they aren't true fans. And that's from a fan standpoint because if the authors are implying that management were the ones that did not embrace black and Latino players, then again, they're speaking out of turn because George Steinbrenner was an equal opportunity jerk to all of his players, and especially the manager. He seemed to fire Billy Martin every six weeks, only to rehire him again. And even Don Mattingly, the beloved saint, is on record saying of the Yankees management Quote, the players get no respect around here. They, the Yankees, give you money to see that. Um, excuse me. Give you money, that's it. Not respect. We get constantly dogged, and the players from other teams love to see that. That's why nobody wants to play here. If the authors are attempting to attach race to the absence of a warm welcome to players of color, they are wrong to do so. If they're asserting that the fans and the larger borough of the Bronx did not embrace them, they are wrong to do so. I know. I was in those stands cheering alongside of thousands of other fans.
0: Yeah, so do you think, um, just a a question, do you think that that it ever had to do with more than just how they play and had to do with race? Like, has that ever crossed your mind or or no?
1: Realistically, I'm sure that race played a part in some decision making at some point during the existence of the of the New York Yankees baseball team.
0: Yeah.
1: However, I don't know that it was a factor during the time period of the late 70s, which was the last time the Yankees were champions to the mid-90s when they reachieved their prominence, which are the years that. The, the the authors are, are, are writing about, you know? Um, in fact, there were many years during that time period that the Yankees outfield was completely comprised of people of color, you know? In yeah. the entire 107 year history of the New York Yankees franchise, there have only been 15 captains. It is notable that during those years, that the authors are pointing to the beloved Yankees infielder mainstay, Willie Randolph made that list and they were completely content to not have a captain. If no one was worthy. I mean, from 1995 to 2003, there was no Yankee captain. Even right now, there is no Yankee captain. So for Willie Randolph to achieve that title, that's a matter of note. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So to finish up, as someone who has experience with baseball and being a Yankees fan, was there ever a time you questioned your own team? And if not, what's something you would change about it? <laughs> well, <laughs> this could I go mean, on, right? Or no? <laughs>
1: I mean, I question, I question them every day. <laughs> like, who made that lineup? Why is that guy starting? Why is a hot dog $23, <laughs> right? There are always questions when it comes to the Yankees, especially when one becomes accustomed to the win at all costs attitude that was prevalent during the Steinbrenner years. But there's one thing that I will never question, and that is my loyalty.
0: Of course. I'm from the Bronx. Yep. There's
1: only one team in this city worth rooting for. That other team in Queens? That's a minor league team that doesn't even deserve me saying their name. And there's no other team in Major League Baseball worth me getting excited about.
0: Yeah, I agree. So I would just like to thank you so much for joining us today and for taking the time out of your day to let me interview you. It's really an honor. I learned a lot. Um, But, yeah, I hope you have a great day. And thank you so much. Nice meeting you through the phone. (laughs)
1: It's been an awesome pleasure to have have gotten to speak with you today.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. I would now like to talk about demographics and the influence of Latino players in the U.S. So we see that Latino players make up about one-third of the entire U.S. Major League Baseball, according to blogs.log.gov. In 2017, Latino players made up 31.9% of the MLB. Major League Baseball would look very different without Latino players and their contributions. They contributed the most important thing of all, and that was equality. They worked hard and didn't let the many barriers stop them, which now influences kids today to become players to their full potential without feeling like they are not going to be accepted because of the color of their skin. And that is just one less thing that you shouldn't worry about, but you don't have to worry about anymore. The bigger picture that I should bring to your attention is that this was not happening only in baseball, but was happening worldwide. And there are equality problems still going on today when it comes to Latinos. But baseball has progressed a lot. It's interesting to see because the Latino population in the U.S. is the second largest, but are seen to some people as... People who are just taking up space and who don't belong in the U.S. or are even considered as a threat to the U.S. The barriers like language and skin color that were seen in baseball are still going on today. There is a mentality that we will never be welcomed because of these barriers, which will then lead to the stereotype of being illegal and not being accepted because we are here to do nothing but hurt the U.S., which is false. I do believe, though, that Baseball led us to a path of greater acceptance. This was the start. We even see people come together in games. Baseball gave people the opportunity to see that we are all people and we are all capable of doing the same things regardless of your language or skin color. Baseball players use their fame and their voice to speak up on sensitive topics. We saw Roberto Clemente become one of the most loved baseball players because of how he carried himself, as I said earlier. He fought against racial injustices toward brown and black people and didn't care what people had to say. Roberto Clemente stated in his last interview that he was discriminated against in the New York furniture store because of his skin color, and he states that he would fight against these injustices by refusing to have food brought to him on the team because he and his other teammates could not dine with the white teammates. A lot of people look up to him and inspire many to speak up. So now to end with my Latinos in the U.S. class and to compare the idea of Latinos and how they were not accepted, even when it comes to media and what I learned overall, I would like to finish up this episode by talking about media and how it goes hand in hand with baseball and our differences. In my Latinos in the U.S. class, I learned that there were a lot of expectations expecting to be met, especially being a Latino. People saw us as different and not in a good way. We see that it was normal to see a white person with straight hair in the magazines. And this becomes a problem because then people will start believing that that's the normal. When there really shouldn't even be any normal because we are all different in our own way. Going back to baseball, it's the same way. I believe that a lot of people growing up gave up on their dreams to become a baseball player because of their skin color. And because they weren't accepted this then becomes an identity problem and will make people question who they really are. A perfect example of this is Sammy Sosa. Sammy Sosa was a Dominican baseball right fielder that played in the Major League Baseball with the Chicago Cubs. We see him over the years change his skin complexion, but interestingly enough, this change occurred after his baseball career, which makes it even hard for me to think like why he did this, but... He was dark-skinned and he became white. In an interview, he states, I'm not racist, I live my life happily. But it's just very interesting to see a person change their complexion complexion, and there has to be a reason. I would like to talk about everything that I have learned in my Latinos in the U.S. class and how it has impacted my life. The class gave me the opportunity to be more open with my roots and the history of it all. It made me realize the troubles that people went through that I luckily enough have not gone through. There's a lot yet to explore but this was just the beginning and I am very thankful that I was able to experience it the way I did. This is all for today. Thank you for listening. To a league of our own.